no snow, yeah! <laughs> Leading up to Easter, we're talking about Jesus a lot, right? We're talking about God, the gospel, the good news, the message of who Jesus was and what he did and what he taught. And so we've talked about how he's, he is God himself in human flesh. And we've talked about uh, his grand teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, kind of redefines what it means to be blessed by God. We'll talk about some more things later on, like his miracles and different things like that. But this morning, we're going to talk about this other teaching of his that was kind of distinct for him. It was all about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God all the time. Sometimes he referred to it as the kingdom of God. Sometimes he used the phrase kingdom of heaven, but he was always talking about it. He talked about what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God and how do you enter the kingdom of God and what does it look like in the kingdom of God. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He talked about its arrival. He talked about how when the kingdom of God is in place, it's good news. In fact, the idea of the kingdom of God was so central to Jesus' message that this is what Jesus himself had to say about it. He'd been in a town, and he'd been preaching, and he'd been doing miracles, and great things were happening. As a result, of course, the people loved having him there. They loved him being there, and they wanted him to stay. And uh, overnight, he kind of went off, as was his custom, to kind of a lonely place to pray. And then the next morning, he was getting ready to leave, and they didn't really like that. And this is what he said to them when they said uh, they wanted to say. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. If you ask Jesus, why were you sent? His answer was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to all the different towns and to all the different people. It was that central. And so it's definitely worth figuring out what did he understand that phrase to mean? What did his listeners understand that phrase to mean as well? And here's just kind of a very concise, easy, understandable definition of what Jesus would have meant and what his listeners would have understood by the phrase the kingdom of God. And that is that the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. And, and we can see this tracked throughout uh, all of scripture, starting way back at the very beginning at creation, where there's nothing and then God speaks everything into existence and he takes Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden and he's in right relationship with them. He is their God. They have their unquestioning loyalty to him and, and their God rules over God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, right there in that garden. And it was perfect. And of course, the devil didn't like that, so he wanted to intervene and said, how can I get in the way of this kind of kingdom of God thing that's going on in the garden? So he sends the, you know, in the form of the serpent, he tempts Eve. She yields to the temptation. Adam follows suit. And there's a problem. Sin has entered the world, right? And this idea of, of uh, God, God's rule over God's people in God's place gets all broken up and they get evicted from the garden. And on the way out, God says to the serpent, he says, hey, from, by the way, from now on, in addition to everything else, there's going to be this enmity, this hostility, this animosity between you and the descendants of, of humankind uh, moving forward. And, and that wasn't just about like the reptile, although Lord knows there's plenty of enmity and animosity to go around where snakes are concerned for sure. But he wasn't just speaking of that. He was talking about the tension and the division and the animosity that would take place between Satan himself 
and, and humanity as they move forward. You say that's always going to be a struggle. In fact, the rest of human history can be discussed in terms of trying to reestablish God's rule over God's people in God's place and the, and the opposition to that brought by the enemy of our souls. You see, uh, time went on and uh, God, needed, God wanted to establish his kingdom again and he reached out to a guy named Abraham who lived over in what would become Babylon. It wasn't Babylon yet. But he calls Abraham and he says, look, I want you to become the father of a great nation. And I want that nation to be my people. And I would like to demonstrate my rule over my people, but I'd like you to come over here to my place that I have for you. And so he calls Abraham from where he was, and Abraham in faith walks and comes over and encounters the promised land. And it was great. It was kind of God's kingdom in place, and it was right there, except shortly thereafter, it didn't take so many generations before they ended up down in Egypt, right? I mean, they went south. Things went south, both geographically and metaphorically, because when they got down to Egypt, they became slaves. And for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, they existed. Yes, they were God's people. But when they looked around, they didn't, it didn't appear to them that God was ruling or in charge, and they certainly weren't in God's place down there in the land of Egypt. So in response to that, God sends Moses. Moses talks to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. God delivers the people of Israel, right? They, they come up out of Egypt. They escape through the Red Sea and through the desert wanderings, and they end up again in the promised land where God rules God's people in God's place. And the kingdom of God is visible. It's tangible. You can see it. You can touch it. You can be a part of it that way. And it grows, and the, and the, the uh, kingdom grows. They, they get their king Saul, then they get king David, and the kingdom becomes like this international reality, and, and countries around the world are looking to Israel as an example of all the things that are good. And you can see that when God rules his people in his place, great things happen. And then as sin and as rebellion and as a rejection to God fell in as well, bad things began to happen. And within a few more generations... These people who lived in the glorious reign of King David in Israel found themselves being conquered and being carted off to Babylon as exiles, as captives. And there they dwelt for another couple generations where they still held on to their identity. They said, we are still the people of God and somehow we believe God is ruling but we can't really see it right now but we are definitely not in God's place. And they cried out to him. The cry of their heart was, God, we want for you to we want to be your people. We want for you to rule us. We want to be returned to your place. And through God's intervention and the hard work and ministry of people like Nehemiah, they found their way back and they were returned to Israel. And once again, God ruled God's people in God's place. And they could look around and say, this is an evidence of the kingdom of God at hand. And then you come to the end of the, New or the Old Testament and there's like this silence and God's not speaking through the prophets and there's not a lot of history. But in the, in the time where the Bible is being silent, um, different world kingdoms come through and Israel becomes a conquered people again and again and again. Just it's passed from one dynasty to another until at the time of Jesus, uh, Rome is the one who oversees them, who rules them and who oppresses them. And they say, God, we're here. We are your people. We believe that you want to rule your people in your place. Well, we're here, God, in your land, and we are your people, but when they looked around, they saw no evidence of God's rule. They saw a tyrannical a Roman ruler who was oppressing them and taxing them and making their life miserable. And this played into all of their expectations. When those people in Jesus' day 
heard about the kingdom of God, they said, look, we are God's people and we're in God's place. The only thing that's missing is God rule. And what the, is what the Messiah is going to do is going to come in, stand in, overthrow Rome uh, and create a new kingdom. He's going to return the rule of God to the people of God in the land of God. They were expecting that the Messiah that would come would set them free. And that once again, they would get to experience what the kingdom of God had always been intended to look like, right? That was their expectation, to be sure. The problem is that when Jesus did come, they were so tied to their expectations that they missed the fulfillment of all those prophecies, even as they were being uh, revealed right in front of them. Because Jesus' understanding of the kingdom of God was very different than theirs. The way he talked about it, the way he taught about it, the way he demonstrated it, the way he invited people to participate in it ended up being very different than what everyone had expected. And so we come to a chapter in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, where Jesus begins to talk an awful lot about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and describing it. And I just encourage you, there's more here than we can cover in a single morning. Lots of descriptions, lots of parables. Lots of discussions about what the kingdom of God is like. This is a chapter that is worth your time this week to read and say, what does it look like when, when God's rule is among God's people in God's place? This chapter describes it, but we're going to look at a couple of the parables that Jesus told that describe his view of this kingdom of God. So starting in verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of God, he said, or the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. And though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. And Jesus told these two really brief, really short parables to illustrate some very definite things about the kingdom of God. And the things that I think are, are most immediately accessible, the things that we see very clearly as we read them, is this. At first, the kingdom of God is something that starts out small, and it grows slowly. But when it gets there, it changes everything. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very small, you, you can't hardly tell that it's there. And yet, when it grows and when it uh, matures and when it expands and flourishes and blooms, it becomes this great and mighty bush, this thing that sustains life for others and provides protections and a place to stay for the birds and whatnot. It starts small. And this sometimes is a little bit different than what we want the kingdom of God to be in our life, right? I mean, think about the places where you struggle and where it's difficult and where it's hard and you just want the kingdom of God to break in and make a difference. What do we want the kingdom of God to look like then? I want it to look like a miracle. I want it to look like in a moment. Like I had this problem and then I prayed and then the kingdom of God broke in and everything changed right then and there. And by God's grace, sometimes it happens that way, but a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times when we're looking for the big bang, dynamic, miraculous, over-the-top, life-changing, extravagant thing for God to do, God's actually beginning small with a little thing like a mustard seed. 
which if we give it time and if we give it place and if we cultivate it and water it and care for it, it will grow inevitably, inescapably towards something more wonderful and large than we can imagine. But if we're stuck on wanting to see the big bang item right away, we may miss what God's been doing. Sometimes don't you feel like you want to like just out of devotion and love for God, God, I just want to do something big and great and grand for you. I want to do this big grandstand thing that blesses you and pleases you and lets you know how serious I am about you. God, I'm going to fast for 12 whole hours. (laughs) God, I'm going to give up every habit I've ever had and I'm going to not ever have another habit ever again, right? I just want to do something great. One of the applications of this parable of this sense that the kingdom of God begins small is that our responses to God don't have to be over the top to be meaningful. And God sometimes doesn't need us to do the great, big, huge, and monstrous thing. Sometimes all he's asking of us is a tiny, small, mustard seed step of obedience. Is there just a small step that you know God's asked of you? A a small step to take. A minor obedience. Maybe a single kindness towards someone who's difficult to get along with. Maybe committing to saying, I'm going to read my Bible a little a day or pray regularly. Whatever that might be. Maybe just a commitment to forgive. See, our our responses to God don't have to be over-the-top and outlandish. They can be very basic and very entry-level and very small like a mustard seed. But But God can take that mustard seed of obedience, care for it, nourish it, cultivate it, and grow it into the kingdom of God welling up within us. Is there a small obedience that God has asked of you and maybe you've been tempted even to write it off as something trivial and that couldn't possibly matter, I want to suggest to you this morning that it may matter a great deal and that mustard seed of obedience could produce a great crop of the kingdom of God growing up within you. Like a mustard seed, the kingdom of God grows slowly too. Like we want to see the changes. We want to see the demonstration of God's power in his kingdom right here and now. It takes time. When you plant a seed, you wait. And you wait, and you wait, and it requires patience. Are you willing to wait patiently for the kingdom of God to reveal itself in you? And it changes everything. I like that image that Jesus gives. It's like like a woman um, mixing the yeast into 60 pounds of flour. It's a lot of flour. Right? We, uh, every now and then we have pizza night at our house and kind of one of my jobs on pizza night is to make the dough so I get to do that. I'm using the big kitchen aid, so I'm not like, don't worry about me, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I don't make 60 pounds of pizza dough at a time, all appearance to the contrary. <laughs> but if you've ever done pizza dough and done it wrong, you know that a pizza dough that hasn't been affected by the yeast is just a lump of dough sitting there doing nothing. You may as well grab a tube of like the pre-done cookie mix and just throw it down in the bottom of the bowl and let it sit there because nothing's happening. But if you do it right, and that little bit of yeast that you put in with a whole batch of dough starts to get integrated and worked into every little compartment and every little portion of that lump of dough, it doesn't happen all at once. 
And you got to give it some time and some space and some patience. But you start to th see things happening and it starts to rise up. It comes to begin, it, it, it comes to become what it's intended to be. And the kingdom of God is like that. Once it gets worked in, once it gets knit in, integrated into every compartment of our life, it starts rising up and we start becoming who we're intended to be. And we give evidence of being God's people whom God is ruling in God's place. Jesus went on to tell another parable and he told that, this one this way. He said, in addition to all that, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold uh, all that he had so that he could buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. The idea is this. First of all, Jesus points out the kingdom of God, it's supremely valuable. It's worth everything. There's this incredible value to the kingdom of God. And, and this is really important, it's so valuable that it inspires a joyful sacrifice. I love that line in the, in the treasure in the field image where he says that the guy, having discovered that there's this incredibly valuable treasure, he runs back and he joyfully sells everything that he has. Because he's aware that in selling everything that he has, he's gaining access to this treasure that far surpasses the value of these things that he's getting rid of. He joyfully sacrifices because of the value of what he gains. The kingdom of God will, as it grows up within us, as it begins to take root in us, as we become to be called to be more and more Christ-like, it will require some sacrifices of it. There are, I mean, eventually, it's not the point. We don't ever earn God's salvation. He gives us that. He gives us relationship as a free gift. But within the context of that relationship, he starts guiding us to live a life that reflects his will and reflects his heart. And so there are some things that will get sacrificed along the way as we follow Jesus. There are some behaviors that because God is leading and guiding us will we'll get cut out. God will call us to do difficult things. To love a neighbor who's a jerk. Maybe to stop being the neighbor who's a jerk. I don't know. <laughs> but it'll call us to live our life in a particular way. To spend and steward our money in a particular way. To give towards others and meet the needs of others in a particular way. And that will require sacrifice on our part. But this parable reminds us that those sacrifices should be joyful. They should be done joyfully because we realize that whatever it is that we're giving up pales in comparison with the value of what we gain by the kingdom of God among us. You guys typically don't get to see it because you're facing this direction on a Sunday, but you know when the offering basket goes by, and a lot of you do like text to give offering or online giving or things like that, but the people who are putting the checks and the cash in the basket when they do that, that's not a painful look on their face. There is a sense of joy and participation and joyful sacrifice that's not like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my, how am I going to make it? Okay, there's my dollar. 
But there's this sense of no, we're participating in something. We're, yes, there's a, I am, we're, I'm giving some of what belongs to me, but I, I derive great joy from the fact of knowing what it's going to produce. Books and libraries in Indonesia. People being introduced to Jesus. Heaven being populated for eternity. That, that makes the giving joyful, right? He, the kingdom of God is something that makes our sacrifices joyful. The kingdom of God is valuable and it inspires joyful sacrifice. And ultimately, it really will require everything of you. Because at the end of the day, if, when we say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You're Lord. You're in charge. You're ruler. When, when we become followers of Jesus, um, it's like giving him the keys to the house, giving him the keys to the car, or as is sometimes more difficult, giving him access to the steering wheel of the car of our life and letting him call the shots, right? But those sacrifices aren't painful. They're joyful because of the incredible value of the kingdom of God. Luke 17, Jesus gets to what's maybe the most important part of what he taught about the kingdom of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. Remember, they're saying, when's the kingdom going to come? When's, that, when's the Messiah coming and overthrowing Rome? When are we going to be free from this political dictatorship? When are we going to actually see the power of God revealed in a way that changes my circumstance? When's that going to happen? And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not an event. The kingdom of God is not a coup or an overthrow. But the kingdom of God is something that takes place in your midst and within you. Jesus signals in this passage the most dynamic and unbelievable reality. The old covenant in which all of his people grew up said that the key to walking with God was to live according to the wall, live according to the law, and then when you fail to live up to the law, Follow, follow the sacrificial system to make atonement for that. And Jesus began to institute a new covenant here, and he says, actually, the kingdom of God is no longer going to be about just whether you follow the rules and, uh, and apologize appropriately. The kingdom of God is going to be something about God's spirit living and dwelling literally within you. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's right here. He was talking about himself partly, but he was looking ahead to a time when the kingdom of God would be made available to people who said yes in faith to Jesus Christ and had the Holy Spirit of God take up residence in their heart. The most dynamic reality and the presence of the kingdom of God. Many of you here in this place are followers of Jesus. Some of you for a shorter time, some of you for a longer time. Some of you have just planted seeds of faith in the ground and eventually you're hoping to see some growth. Others of you planted seeds of faith long ago and there's a growing and a flourishing and a blooming that's taking place and that is magnificent. But some of us in this room have never taken that moment, have never actually planted that little tiny seed of the faith, the faith that's required to say yes to Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you can. You can experience the kingdom of God in your life. 
you can experience the rule of God in your life as a person of God, in the place of God, which is right where you are, because the kingdom of heaven can be within you. And you can't earn it. You can't perform your way into it. The only way that you get that is to, is to by faith, say, God, I choose to receive. I acknowledge where I'm weak. I acknowledge where I fail. And I acknowledge that I sin. But God, I'm, I'm, drawing, I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm inviting you to be my Lord. And if you've never done that, then you've never really begun the process of the kingdom of God rising up within you. But I want to invite you to take that step, that small little mustard seed step of obedience and faith, and begin that journey today. I'd like for all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for any who are interested in saying, I need to take that step. I need to say yes to God. I need to begin following Jesus. I need the kingdom of God to begin the process of growing up and taking my life forward. Is that you? Is this your moment? Is this the day that you say yes to Jesus Christ, begin following him, and see the kingdom of God made manifest in your life? If that's you, I'm going to pray for you in a moment. I'd love to know who I'm praying with and for. So if that's you, would you just real quick raise your hand up and then down, and then I will be praying for you. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yep, balcony, gotcha. All right. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for these who have exercised faith and courage and said yes. God, you see their hands raised. God, you know their hearts, you know their name, you know their story, and you know their need. God, along with them, we all acknowledge we are sinners, that we fail, and that we are not equal to being the people you call us to be. But you sent your son Jesus as the mark of perfection. And because you love us and because he willingly sacrificed himself for us, you're willing to apply his perfection to us, to forgive us our sins, to cause the, your very spirit to dwell in us. To designate us for eternal life. And so God, we say yes to that gift this morning. Would you forgive us? Would you make us clean? Would you cause the kingdom of heaven to begin dwelling within us? Would you establish in us your rule as your people in this place where we are today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Scott. Great word. If today you opened up your heart to Jesus Christ, we would love to pray with you. And we have a prayer team that will meet right over here to my right, your left, and uh, they'd love to pray with you. Or if you have any other prayer needs that are going on, you'd like some people to stand with you in prayer. If you're newer or newer to the church, I would love to meet with you directly uh, right now after the service underneath that monitor and show you a couple quick ways you can get better connected here. Well, before you go, we're going to give you one of these cards. It's an invite card to Easter, and Easter is coming really soon. We want to encourage you to take this card and give it to somebody that you care about. Give it to somebody that is a friend, a family member, or somebody at your work, and uh, that you would commit to pray for, but you'll also meet them here and invite them to the service. 
and uh, attend along with them. And so uh, this will be given to you on your way out. We also have a Good Friday service coming up uh, right before Easter. And guess what day it's on? Friday. That's right. Perfect. And uh, so you, we'll have another card for that. But make sure and grab one of these on your way out. Let's stand up together. Make sure and say hello to several people before you get out of here. Great day. Have a wonderful day today. See you next week.